Heavenly Father, again, Lord, we thank you so much for all the blessings that you give to us. But now, Lord, as we dig into your word, I pray that you will touch our hearts with it, that you will change our hearts with your word. Uh, bring us closer to you as we dig into this, Lord. And I, I just pray, Father, that you will um, help us to grow closer to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, so this morning, we are starting a... There we go. We're starting a mini-series. We're kind of taking a break from our regular series. We're going through the book of Acts, um, and it's been a slow go through it, but we're, we're getting there. So we're taking a, mini, uh, a little, a little mini-break for this week and next week. We're going to focus on Easter. Easter, the greatest moment in history, is what this little mini-series is called. Um, but how does that apply to us as disciples? So yes, Easter, the greatest moment in history, but what does that mean for me and you day to day. All right. So, you know, when I was growing up, I thought of Easter or when I thought of Easter. Now, this is when I was really young. When I first thought of Easter, you know, it was chocolate and, and Easter bunny and Easter baskets. Um, you know, kind of like a, a, a JV Christmas. You know, the Easter bunny was like a, a, a JV Santa Claus. Um, and a lot of times when we talk to people in our community, that's the same way that they see Easter. It's another celebration. Um, and they're celebrating springtime or life. Um, and those are okay, but it, it misses the point that Easter is not about, uh, you know, springtime. Easter, it, it's not about bunnies and chocolates and, and toys, but it's about the greatest moment in history when Jesus was resurrected from the grave. So this morning... We're not talking about Easter, though. Next week, we're going to talk about Easter, and that's the greatest moment in history. This week, we're actually going to set the stage for that, because before Jesus could be resurrected, he first had to die. And so this morning, I'm titling the sermon, The Day God Died. Now, a lot of us, when we read that, we say, oh, I don't like that, because we know that God's not dead. It was a movie came out a few years ago, and now I think they've got two sequels, great song, God's Not Dead, and that is true. But at the same time, when with us as Christians, we believe that Jesus is God. We also believe that Jesus literally, historically came to live on this earth. And that he literally, historically, physically went to the cross and died for our sins. Now, thankfully, he didn't stay dead. But I'm titling this sermon, The Day God Died. And we're in Mark chapter 15. If you have your Bible, you can open to Mark chapter 15. We're going to go through verses uh, 22 to 39. And this passage shows us three historical truths about Jesus' death. And that is that Jesus is crucified, Jesus is ridiculed, but finally that Jesus is God. Again, these three historical truths about Jesus' death is that he's crucified, he's ridiculed, and that he is God. So we'll get right into it, um, starting at 15.22. It says, They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Now, just a little side note, in my uh, study and preparation this week, um, I come across a, a little new piece of information that I thought was just interesting. Um, we read Golgotha, place of the skull. Um, Golgotha was the Aramaic word for skull. But when we look at the Latin, well, you'll think, okay, well, the Bible wasn't written in Latin, it was written in Greek. Well, that's true, but Latin was the language of the church for hundreds of years, and it's still the language of the Roman Catholic Church. The Latin word for skull is calvaria, which is where we get our word calvary from. I just thought that was a really neat little connection. Um, so continuing in verse 23, it says, They tried to give him mixed wine, or wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. 
Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was, The King of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. The first thing that points that, that I want to point out here is it says that they divided his clothes. <coughs> now there are many times that Jesus is prophesied in the Old Testament. Throughout the whole Old Testament, we see hints of Jesus. We see that he is crucified and that he is the answer to the Old Testament. But especially in the uh the the crucifixion and resurrection story, we see a lot where Jesus uh, connects with the Psalms. And this comes from Psalm 22. It says, my strength is dried up, or yeah, my strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. Now, this was written by King David. But, you know, that, that sure sounds a whole lot like what's happening with Jesus right now. You know, my strength is dried up like baked clay. He's been tortured, and he is physically beaten and worn down. Uh, it says that dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers have closed in on me. Right? Well, that's, this is, we're going to look more into this in our next section. But we see there's a crowd there gathered around him. It says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Now, I, as far as I know, King David never physically had his hands and his feet pierced. So what is he talking about here? He's prophesying about Jesus. It says, I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. Now, in the crucifixion, when somebody was crucified, not only were they stretched out far and you could see their bones, but also they had been beaten and tortured and a lot of times the whip that they would use to beat somebody, it had um, glass and shards of bone embedded into the whip. And so when they would fling it onto them, it wasn't just the action of hitting them with it, but as they pulled it off, it would pull off chunks of flesh. And so when they say that he could, I can count all my bones, sometimes you could literally see the ribs because the skin and flesh had been taken out from it. Um, but... Well, I really want to focus where it says they divided my my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. That's right here in uh, Mark 15. It's right there. But also, look, it says that the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. Now, this was written or inscribed on a tablet and hung over his head. Um, it says that he was the king of the Jews. This placard identified the charges that they brought against Jesus. They were declaring him a messianic pretender. That he was pretending to be the Messiah. And this is, they were saying that he is a political threat to Rome. Now, in Rome, there was one king, and that was Caesar, and that was it. There's the only king. And so, for anybody to claim that they were the king was a direct challenge to Caesar. And so, they're putting Jesus on the cross, and they're putting this charge above him saying, You want to claim that you're the king? Well, this is what's going to happen to you. Ironically, though, the sign that they place over Jesus' head that says the king of the Jews proclaims his true identity. See, the last psalm that we read was from King David. Jesus is quoting him because David, though imperfect, was a preview of Jesus. See, David was a good king in Jewish history. We look at David as a good example for our lives. He is described as a man after God's own heart. But David wasn't perfect. David had some pretty serious sins. 
Of course, when we think about it, all sin is serious because we are sinning against a holy God. But even when we look at it culturally, David's sin seems pretty serious to us. So he wasn't perfect, but he was a preview of Jesus, just kind of to, to point in that direction. Jesus is the perfect king. Jesus is the perfect king that David couldn't be. Jesus is the perfect king that Saul couldn't be. Jesus is the perfect king that Caesar can't be. Jesus is the perfect ruler that nobody else can be. But to say that Jesus is the king of the Jews, even though it's not wrong, it's a massive understatement. To understand this, we need to look at John 1. In John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him. And apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. So here we see that the Word, the Word is what created. It says all things were created through the Word. Life comes from the Word. So the Word, then, would be the rightful king, the rightful ruler of all of creation. Well, then, so we have to ask, well, who is the Word? That is given to us a few verses later in verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory. The glory is one, the, the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is God in the flesh coming to live among us. The Son from the Father. This is Jesus. Jesus, because He is the creator of the universe, because He is the ruler of the universe, Caesar is not king. Jesus is the king, not just of the Jews, but of all of humanity. Well, not just all of humanity. Jesus is the king of all of creation. So to say that he's the king of the Jews, that's not wrong, but it's a massive understatement. See, this king uh, does not only rule on high, but he came and lived among us. And not only did he come to live among us, he gave himself to take our punishment. And we see that a few different times in this uh, passage. It says they crucified him in 24. In 25, it says they crucified him. And then in 27, it says they crucified two criminals with him. Now, I've talked a little bit about my personal childhood. Here's, here's another personal childhood misunderstanding that I had. You know, when we got into church, I knew that Easter was about Jesus' resurrection. I knew that Jesus needed to be resurrected because he was killed on the cross. But my misunderstanding was that Crucifixion, I thought crucifixion was something that was extremely rare. Maybe something that only Jesus went through, or Jesus and these two criminals. I thought it was extremely rare. Something special reserved only for Jesus, because, well, he's Jesus. But, as I've grown and learned more, we look historically, and in the Roman Empire, crucifixion was not uncommon. There were hundreds or maybe thousands of people who had been crucified throughout the years. And so, the king of all creation, Jesus, the Son of God, who came to live among us, to live among his creation, he's tortured, just like thousands of other criminals. Nothing special. He's being tortured, publicly humiliated, and executed for me, for you, for the same people who tortured him. He took this punishment because it's the punishment that we deserve. Now, when I say crucifixion was common, that doesn't lessen the, the, the excruciating torture that it was. Crucifixion was 
one of the most painful uh, forms of, of death that, the, that human history has known. Um, but when we, Jesus took this punishment because it's the punishment that we deserve. We deserve this punishment because we turned our backs on, the God, on, on God when we sin. We chose to disobey his laws. Something interesting, if we look at Barabbas in the New Testament, we, haven't, we didn't read his story this morning, but when we look at Barabbas, we get a good idea of ourselves. And when I first heard that, I was like, I'm not Barabbas. In that story, the Barabbas isn't me. You know, Barabbas was a man who was rightfully imprisoned. He was arrested for murder and for causing riots against the Roman Empire. So they arrested him. But he was released. And Jesus, who is sinless, is crucified instead. So we have Barabbas, who broke the law. Barabbas, the murderer, is set free, and Jesus takes his place. Me and you, we're Barabbas. Because we broke God's law, and we deserve that punishment. But Jesus sets us free and takes our place. Now, when we look at the name Barabbas, the name itself is very uninteresting. It's very bland or, or, or generic. Okay, We think of how the Hebrews uh, selected names. They always chose names that were important. Right? So the prefix bar means son of. And then so the second part is Abbas. That's a, a derivative of Abba being a father. So Barabbas is literally the son of a father. Wow, let me talk about a generic name. He's the son of a father. Jesus named, or sorry, God named Barabbas this specifically to point to us. To say that any one of us, every one of us, are Barabbas. Ladies and gentlemen, you are Barabbas. I am Barabbas. Jesus died in our place, and we are set free when we believe in his sacrifice. See, if we, if we keep reading, we see that Jesus isn't just crucified, he's also ridiculed. So picking it up in verse 29, those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests and scribes were mocking him among themselves, saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. So in this section, we see three groups, of pre three groups of people. We see the crowd, we see the religious elites, and the two criminals being crucified with him. Let's look at what they say. The crowd says, Ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. You see, they're referring to a conversation that took place back in John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, This temple took 46 years to build, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement that Jesus had made. See, the crowd mocks Jesus by quoting his words back to him. And then we look at the religious elites. And they say, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down, from the, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. 
And see, this same group of people have asked for a sign several times. They asked Jesus for a sign to prove that he is the Messiah. Well, Jesus performed miracles. He healed numerous illnesses and ailments. Twice he fed thousands of people with very little food. He even raised people from the dead. But none of those were good enough for them. None of those were good enough signs for them to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So they still ask for a sign. This time, though, the sign they ask for is for Jesus to save himself. Now, even one of the criminals who are there, who's, who's crucified with him, mocks him. We don't get the details in the Mark passage, so we need to turn to Luke 24, 39. It says, Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. See, this man calls and joins in, but for personal gain. He's mocking Jesus by saying that if you are the, if you are the Messiah, then get yourself off that cross. And while you're at it, save us too. You know? But through all of this, Jesus is being ridiculed. Through all of it, look at what he says. You see those red words up there? Look at what Jesus says. He doesn't say anything. He says nothing. To understand this, we need to look again into the Old Testament. We look at Isaiah chapter 53. It says, Yet he himself bore our sickness, and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned our, our we all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. I read that again. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before his shearers, he did not open his mouth. See, Jesus went silently to the cross to take the punishment for our sins without complaint and without rejection. Jesus willingly took this rejection and humiliation. He willingly received ridicule, though he didn't deserve it. He did this for you. He did this for me. He did this because we had sinned against a holy God and our rightful punishment is eternity in hell. It's an eternity of torture. But Jesus took that for us. Jesus was rejected by his own creation. If we believe in him, then we are saved. See, not only saved from hell, but saved to a right relationship with God. The relationship that we broke, Jesus now fixes with his sacrifice. See, but that sacrifice, it's not complete yet. We have to keep reading to get to that point. So we were going to pick up verse 33. It says, When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, See, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick and offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. 
Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing opposite him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Right here it says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. See, I can hear the naysayers now. Pastor Jason, you just said that Jesus went silently to the cross without arguing without arguing against the ridicule that the crowd was, yelling, was throwing at him. Yes, I still stand by that statement. I still hold that to be true, even though right here it says Jesus cried out with a loud voice. See, if we read the text, it says that he was crucified at nine in the morning. And then it, there doesn't seem to be any time lapse from that point until they start to ridicule him. But this is three in the afternoon. This is six hours later. Jesus doesn't cry out against the taunting. He doesn't cry out against the ridicule that the crowd is throwing at him. Instead, he cries out because for the first and only time in history, his relationship with the Father is broken. Jesus is abandoned by the Father. He calls to the Father and asks, Why have you abandoned me? So let's think about eternity for a moment. Usually when we think about eternity, or at least me, when I think about eternity, I think about forevermore. I think about forever in heaven. And that's true. But that's only part of eternity. If that mathematically even makes sense to divide something infinite into parts. But that's only part of eternity. Forevermore is only part of eternity. The other part of eternity is forever ago. See, eternity doesn't start now and continue infinitely into the future. Eternity started infinitely long ago and has continued to this point and will continue infinitely into the future. There is no beginning to eternity. There is no end to eternity. Jesus always was throughout all eternity. For an eternity before creation, God existed in perfect relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For all eternity before creation, before Genesis 1, when it says in the beginning, for an eternity before that, Jesus, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit are in perfect relationship. But at this moment, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, Jesus is abandoned by God. Can you imagine being in perfect relationship with God the Father for all eternity to have that taken away from you? See, God the Son had been in perfect relationship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit for eternity before the creation up until this point. And now, because of the sin of the world, because of my sin, because of your sin, the Father's relationship with the Son is broken. See, Jesus experiences hell. Separation from the Father. Jesus experiences hell. This is why he cries out. He doesn't cry out because he's being taunted by the crowd. He cries out because for the first time, in all of eternity, the only time in all of eternity, Jesus is separated from God, the Father. And it says, Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, the temple in Jerusalem had a special room. It was called the Holy of Holies. And in this special room was a, uh, a, a, a concentrated presence of God, a special presence of God. 
This is the, the place where God's presence was uh, specifically concentrated. It was separated from the rest of the temple by a thick, heavy curtain. You see, only the high priest was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies. And he was only allowed to do so once a year. And he was only allowed to do so after several ritual washings and after several sacrifices because he wanted to make sure that his sins had been atoned for before going into God's presence. He wanted to do everything that he could to make his relationship right with God before going into God's presence. Because if he went in there, if he went into God's presence with unconfessed sin, then he would drop dead. Now, we don't know for sure, but um, church tradition tells us that the, Jew, the, the priests would tie a rope around the waist of the high priest when he went in there. Because could you imagine the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and drops dead? Well, you, now you have to wait a whole another year before the next high priest can go in and get him out. So, again, we don't know for sure, but church tradition tells us that they tied a rope around his waist because if he dropped dead, they could just pull him out. Uh, that's kind of gross, but that's, you know, that's, what we, that's what we're told. But now the curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. You see, that curtain being torn top to bottom tells us that it was God who tore the curtain. And that it was torn signifies that God's presence is no longer specifically contained within the Holy of Holies, or concentrated within the Holy of Holies. But God's presence is available to all. And see, this is because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. Like I said, that high priest had to go through ritual washings and, and sacrifices before he could go into the temple, or before he could go into the Holy of Holies. But Jesus has already washed our sins away. So we don't need a high priest to do that for us. God's presence is available to us through Jesus' sacrifice. We can approach God. We don't need a high priest to do it for us. We can do it through Jesus' righteousness. But notice here, finally, what the guard says. He says, truly, this man was the Son of God. See, for the guard, it was seeing Jesus give his life on the cross that convinced him that Jesus was who he said he was. For us, we have God's holy word. We have the Holy Spirit who reveals that truth to us. But our response must be the same. Our response must be that truly this man, this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, was the Son of God. We must, through faith, faith, we must through faith confess that Jesus is the Son of God. He is God, and He gave Himself for us. Believe in Jesus and be saved. Believe in Jesus and be sanctified. Believe in Jesus and be reconciled to God. See, there's a, a Christian uh, author, pastor, entrepreneur. His name is Caesar Kalinowski. He goes by Caesar K because Kalinowski is a little bit of a mouthful. Now, Caesar K says, um, or he defines discipleship as the process of moving from unbelief to belief about what is true of God and the gospel in absolutely every area of your life. I'm going to say that again. Discipleship is the process of moving from unbelief to belief about what is true of God and the gospel in absolutely every area of our life. See, our, our, our salvation depends on who we say Jesus is. And our sanctification, that process of becoming more like Jesus, our spiritual growth, depends on who we say Jesus is. 
Ultimately, how we identify Jesus is the most important question that we will ever answer. So we've come to our application point. And we want to know what lessons we can learn from this message to apply to us as disciples. Make sure that's showing. And that projector on the back doesn't show it very well, but you can see it up here. Um, Now, our definition of a disciple comes from Matthew 4.19. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. So we break that down into three sections, knowing, being, and doing. The knowing is where Jesus says, follow me. The being is where Jesus is making us. And the doing is where we are doing Jesus' work. We are fishing for people. Okay? So when we talk about applying a lesson to us as a disciple, we should see where this applies to at least one of these areas. Uh, But in this passage, we have application in all three. First, knowing. Know that Jesus is the Son of God. Know that the Son of God came and lived a perfect life. That He was ridiculed on the cross. and He was tortured. and He died a torturous death. And He experienced hell to pay the penalty for our sin. And that leads us to our second application point. To be awestruck and amazed. We can be awestruck that Jesus would come and experience that pain for us. Now when I say for us... I don't just mean in our place. Yes, that's true. But he also paid for us. See, we were enslaved by sin. But Jesus came. And through his sacrifice, he bought us out of salvation or out of um, slavery to sin and into freedom. We were enslaved to sin, but Jesus paid our way out of that. So he did this for us. Not just in my place, but for me, to buy my freedom. See, I said this last week, but think about what Jesus had before the cross and what he has after the cross and what he gained by going there. See, did he gain equality with the Father? No, he has always had equality with the Father. Did he gain a better relationship with the Father? No. Their relationship was perfect for all eternity past and will be perfect for all eternity to come. Did he gain the right to rule over creation? No, that right was already his because he created it. So what did Jesus gain by going to the cross? He gained you. He gained me. He gained the relationship. He fixed the relationship that we broke if we just believe in him. And finally, that leads us to our, our final application point, is doing. And that is to believe the gospel. Not just for salvation. Yes, believe the gospel for your salvation. But believe the gospel also for your spiritual growth, for your sanctification. You know, as Caesar K says it, believe in the gospel in all areas of your life. See, we all have areas in our lives that we need to surrender to the gospel. So prayerfully seek out those areas of unbelief in your life and surrender them to the cross. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that you sent your Son to die for our sins. Lord, I thank you that you made a way to reconcile the relationship that we broke. Father, this morning I pray that you will help us to surrender to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we've come to our point of response. You can respond where you're seated and you can pray there. You can come to the front Pray at the cross, or you can come and pray with me. But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning.